I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler. On tonight's episode, we'll go over the recruiting class, everything that went into it, and what we ended up with. And we'll talk about the portal. We'll talk about the new coaches. There's lots to talk about. A lot, a lot of the action this week, Will. Really, we could stretch this out over about two to three episodes, but we'll uh, we'll try to stay as focused as we can on some of these topics. You, you can have much larger discussions, but luckily we got an entire offseason to uh, dive into most of this. Let's start with the recruiting class. I think the headline of the class has been, will be, and hopefully will go down as legacy, DJ Lagway. DJ Lagway, the quarterback coming in from Willis, Texas, set the tone early, got in early with this class, and, and really helped to build it up over time. What was left of that class by the end of it, we could talk about that in a little bit, but Lagway is the most pivotal recruit prob- potentially signed by Florida Maybe since Tim Tebow, Will, maybe since Tim Tebow, that's very high expectations to put on the kid. But I'll tell you what, for Billy Napier to succeed at Florida, DJ Lagway is a key, key recruit like we haven't seen in, in a long time here in Gainesville. He's the key re- recruit, right? I mean, now he's done everything up until this point that you can ask. I mean, he improved from a junior year where he was a fantastic borderline four slash five star player to the guy who just won all sorts of awards. I think he won the high school Heisman, the Max Preps player of the year. So he's a guy that everybody's looking at and saying, this is a can't miss prospect at the most important position of the field. And so we'll see, right? I mean, look, Florida just had a guy who worked under Billy Napier and Dan Mullen who went fifth in the NFL draft, and obviously the team fourth in the NFL draft, and that team went six and six. So it turns out when you got a defense that's absolutely terrible, it doesn't really matter how good or explosive your quarterback is. And and Florida's offense hasn't been awful in the two years under Billy Napier. It hasn't been fantastic, but it hasn't been awful. The problem has been the defensive side of the ball. So while DJ Lagway, I think – the, the key is going to be, and I, I put this in, in in my article this week, which is that um, which is that if you looked at LSU this year, Jaden Daniels was unbelievable, but the defense was awful. And so LSU goes nine and three. And now Jaden Daniels is gone. And when you look at like Florida in 2020, you had Kyle Trask and the defense was awful for Florida. And then Kyle Trask is gone. Here, Florida's defense is awful, but you've got a few years to grow into it with DJ Lagway. And what you need is you need to time it up. You need to time up a defense that is reaching its peak at a time when DJ Lagway is also reaching his peak. And so what what Napier has to do is figure out, one, how to hold on long enough and have the patience of the fan base in order to be able to get there, and two, to be able to get there, right? Like, the defense doesn't need to be top 20 next year. The defense needs to be top 22 or three years from now because if DJ Lagway is a Heisman candidate with a top 20 defense, Florida's in the playoff. And that, I think, is where you really sort of look at it. There is a possibility because of the play that Florida potentially could get from the quarterback position that the playoff is within reach. I mean, look, LSU had an awful defense, almost as bad as Florida's this year. They're probably in the playoff if it's a 12-team playoff at 9-3. and three. Now, they didn't beat anybody of significance this year. I mean, they lost all their, all their real games when you think about it. But at the same time, 
Like they're they're a couple of plays in a, in, a, in the game against Ole Miss from being ten and two and being a shoe in for being a twelve team tournament, being in the twelve team tournament. So that twelve team tournament ch- shifts the way things are going to be perceived, shifts how elite you need to be on a roster overall. And so if you get elite quarterback play, I don't think there's any doubt that you're going to have an opportunity to potentially make it into the playoff. And obviously, Florida's going to need elite quarterback play because uh, you know there, there's going to be a lack of depth at some other positions. That's just sort of the way it is. Yeah, 12 team playoffs starting next year. That really changes the conversation. Our, our conversation in the past is centered on catching the Georgias and Alabamas in the world because you got to win the SEC to make the playoff, have that guaranteed spot. Not so anymore. That 12 team playoff, you got a quarterback like DJ Lagway. A great quarterback can cover a lot of holes on a college football roster. Go back and look at the 2010 Auburn team with Cam Newton, Will. It, it is something that you might need in term that elite roster in terms of being a national, a serious national championship contender, but in terms of a team that's going to make the playoffs in the next few years, it starts with the quarterback. You get a quarterback in here like DJ Lagway of that caliber, things can change quickly. Well, look, he's a critical component. He's always been a critical component. Um, the 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 comparison to Auburn is apropos for a couple of reasons. One is that that team doesn't sniff a national title without Cam Newton at quarterback. And the other thing is, is they were, I think, 7-0 and in one-score games, including the national championship game was one of those one-score games. Won a lot of games by field goals, had sort of a miracle comeback against Alabama. Um, those are the sorts of things you're going to have to have go your way if you want to win national titles when you don't have elite recruiting. Um, at the same time, this was always sort of the – like if you look at Mullen – he goes 10 and 3 that first year in 2018 with Felipe Franks at the helm. But when they were 6 and 3 after the loss to Missouri and down by two or three touchdowns to South Carolina, no one saw them rolling off four or five straight games to end the season. Certainly it looked like it looked like it was going to be almost curtains for the season when they were down to South Carolina. Could have been six and four, heading into, you know, sort of just a general malaise in, in that first year. And all of a sudden they catch fire and they're able to build that one up to 10 and three, but it was really close there to being much, much worse than that. And it wasn't until Kyle Trask took over after the Kentucky game in 2019, that things really started to take off. They, again, they couldn't match up Trask play at quarterback with elite play on defense because the defense was really good in 2019. Trask just wasn't quite there yet as who he would become in 2020. And that'll be the key is, the timing is going to be everything. Like you look at the Georgias and the Alabamas of the world and they don't necessarily have to time up their quarterback being an elite player at the same time they have an elite defense because they always have very, very good players around that quarterback. And so when that quarterback develops, that's when you start seeing it. I mean, we've seen it at Clemson, right? Where, um, you know, Taj Boyd starts out, then they go to Deshaun Watson, then Trevor Lawrence, having that quarterback through there sort of put them on the map. And now Clemson, you know, they've gone back a little bit as they've had these other guys, Yuyagalele and Cade Klubnik come in, both five-star guys, but haven't performed at the level of a Trevor Lawrence or a Deshaun Watson. And that's really, I think, the, the, the maybe cautionary tale here is that not every five-star quarterback – pans out you you and Klubnik were five-star guys there are all sorts of guys in the past you start looking at sort of some of the guys who've been ranked as high as dj lab lagway 
and it's not like a who's who of everybody. So like if you go back to 2013, you got Max Brown who went to USC. You remember what he did? No, nobody does. Yeah, Christian's, Christian Hackenberg at Penn State was ranked 12th overall. Kyle Allen went to went to Texas A&M. You had Josh Rosen to UCLA. Was okay at UCLA. Got drafted in the first round. Wasn't fantastic. You got Shea Patterson who was old Miss in Michigan. You got Jacob Eason who was at Georgia and then got beat out by Jake Fromm. Davis Mills who was at Stanford got drafted but sort of pretty average play now you got trevor lawrence first round first number one pick in the draft you got justin fields very high pick in the draft spencer rattler who was um who was awesome in Oklahoma's first year and then sort of fell off. You got Bryce Young, then you got Yui Agalele, you got Quinn Ewers, who's about to play in the playoff, Caleb Williams, who everybody thinks is going to be in the top few picks in the draft, and then you got Sam Heward, who transferred to Cal Poly after minimal playing time at Washington. Those are guys who were in the top 15 from 2013 to 2021. That's the list. And so there's a lot of hits in there. There's a lot of guys who are like the number one or number two pick in the draft. There's a lot of guys who aren't getting drafted. And I think that's sort of the thing is that oftentimes quarterback is one of the toughest spots to evaluate. And DJ Lagway from a production standpoint has been fantastic in high school, has a ton of skills. He ran for almost a thousand yards this year. The question is going to be, do those skills translate? I'm sure I'll be writing about that as the off season goes along as to whether they're going to translate, looking at some of the film, all that sort of stuff. But I guess that's the that's the the cautionary tale, right? Is that he could be Justin Fields, he could be Trevor Lawrence, he could be Spencer Rattler, he could be Sam Heward. And who he is is going to determine go a long way towards determining what uh what Florida is able to do in the next three or four years. Yeah, he strikes me as incredibly mature for his age as well. I, I love the way he handled the whole recruitment. Uh, obviously, as a gator, you love it, right? <laughs> he was pretty consistent from day one. There was Never really serious consideration after the commitment from from at least it, it didn't come across that way. I'm sure he was taking calls behind the scene, but there was never that oh is he going to jump type of feeling with him. He he stayed steady throughout the entire time. And another guy who was like that, I probably should mention uh, L.J. McRae second, but he made us wait, so we can make him wait a little bit here. Miles Graham jumped right in from day one. Was the first one committed in this class. First one to sign on signing day, obviously a legacy play. Uh, Miles Graham, unfortunately, the, the the story gets overshadowed with Jay Bateman, which we'll talk about later with Ernest Graham and Jay Bateman. But I think that's he, he had a great season at Gainesville Buholtz this past year. He transferred into Gainesville Buholtz to be close to UF. Great season for the Bobcats and really heck of a linebacker coming in here for a team that badly needs a high-level player at this position. Looking forward to seeing Miles Graham in orange and blue. Yeah, I mean, so Florida's linebackers were the weak spot for the team this past year, and it really wasn't particularly close. So, like, if you look at pro football focus, the average linebacker play, it, the average linebacker rating last year was a 65, and Florida's were at 57.2, but that doesn't really – that that – that is inflated by Shamar James. Everybody else was, was pretty rough when it came to Florida overall. And so I think just having a guy who can bring them up to average at the linebacker spot is going to be critical. Now, can they find a guy who can do that? Can Graham do that? Can Aaron Childs do that? The other linebacker in this class, or, you know, is, is it, is it still going to be the same thing where we get, where we have to hear excuses about how young people are and how young the defense is. 
as certain positions struggle throughout the year. I mean, look, there will be playing time. There's going to be opportunities for guys who are physically gifted to get in there. But we've seen enough that physically gifted isn't enough. You got to be able to fill the gaps. You got to be able to take on the offensive linemen who are pulling. You got to make sure that you are in the correct gap, that you have the discipline to be in the right spot. And then beyond that, you got to make sure that your safeties know you're going to be in the right gap so that they can be where they're supposed to be for their run responsibilities. And then they need to be there too. And this is one of the things, especially when it comes to run defense, it's just, it is a team thing. So one guy isn't going to fix it, but certainly Graham being a legacy, being somebody who you figure um, is not like, and you got to think of it in these terms, right? I mean, I think the ETN uh, movement in the transfer portal suggests that, you got to focus on guys that you think are going to be there for an extended period of time while you're rebuilding. And a guy like Graham, who has the history of Florida, who wouldn't want to, um, who wouldn't want to disappoint the fan base. You wouldn't think for both himself, but also for his father is going to be somebody who might stick it through some tough times and get better on the other end, as opposed to some guys who decide to transfer, um, you know, whether for regardless of what the reason is. Right. But that um, you figure you get at least an extra shot with Graham to convince him if there's any sort of, if there's any sort of, uh, you know, inclinations about portals or, or NFL or any of those sorts of things. Yeah. Hey, look for everyone who's frustrated with, with all the flips and everything with this class, this stuff's going on all over the country. Uh, is it happening disproportionately to our class when we're hoping to have a top five class? Yes, that's fair. That's fair to say. But DJ Lagway, Miles Graham, two guys that were steady throughout this entire time, and they really anchored this class. They were on campus helping out with recruiting. Those guys were solid at the linebacker spot. To Aaron Childs, we'll just quickly run through some other spots here. Well, Aaron Childs looks like a solid, solid prospect out of Maryland. Uh, but let's go up to the uh, defensive front. Three defensive linemen coming in this class. We talked about Brian Taylor coming in through the JUCO Blinn College. Uh, Micaiah Bor- uh, Boru was it was in was out is back in. Big fell up the middle. Uh, you needed that big body, especially after the departure of Nasir Johnson from the class. But L.J. McCray is the highlight. He is the crown jewel along the defensive front. And for as in the good, bad, and ugly type of segment you could do for this recruiting class, L.J. McCray, D.J. Lagway, the two crown jewels of this recruiting class, absolutely. Uh, McCray, big fell out of Mainland High School. So you get that Daytona Beach kid nearby to commit the number one defensive lineman in the country will be signing up to play football in Gainesville next year. So the depth, not quite where we want it, but the high end talent coming in. Well, McCray is, is one of the poster boys for, for that high end talent coming in. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, six, six, two sixty. you think about, who Florida's losing, especially with Human Meelan going on to Ole Miss through the transfer portal, there's going to be opportunities for McCray to pass rush. And even if he's a situational pass rusher, and this is the thing with like a five-star guy, you expect the physical gifts to be able to overcome the things that maybe are limiting in terms of knowledge of the scheme and those sorts of things. Look, if he comes in early, if he's an early enrollee and he's and he's in spring camp and then fall camp, he's almost a sophomore at that point. So you don't necessarily think that he can't get the entire playbook. But even if you've got somebody who just, you know, you trust other guys more, that still means that on third down, you can line the guy up at outside linebacker and say, go get him. And six, six, two, sixty, that's one of his skills. He's going to be able to go do that. Th- this entire class 
you know, it's interesting. So last year it was a lot of four stars in the hundred to 250 range of guys in the class. And and the criticism that I had, and I think most people had was not enough high-end talent this year. There's not a whole lot of guys in the hundred to 200 range. In fact, there's not one guy in the hundred to 200 range, but you've got Lagway and you've got McCray up there. And then you've got three other guys in the top 100 or top 92 um, in, in Graham, Amir Jackson and Aaron Childs. So this is a top heavy or a top talent heavy class. The, the expected value from this class is going to come from those guys. Um, but I've written about this, that I wrote about this when Dan Mullen was, was head coach is that if you don't want to, or can't, or have limited resources or whatever, in terms of like, you're better off bringing in two or three, five stars, and then a bunch of three stars, than you are bringing in guys who are rated a hundred to 200 the whole way through. Um, so if anybody wants to check out that article, it's called the five, three theory is something I wrote a while back on. And if you look at sort of how the way Texas has built their team, it's very similar to that. Now, look, a guy like Xavier Fulsimi, who we're going to talk about in a minute, like that guy fits the profile of that five, three theory, a guy you want to bring in. And you certainly don't want to thumb your nose at anybody who's in the top 100. Those guys do turn out at a higher likelihood and usually a higher NFL draft pick than guys in two in the 200s to 300s, 300s, 400s, that sort of stuff. But the expected value of a guy who's 470 is like the gap between a guy who's ranked 80th and a guy who's ranked 400th is smaller than the gap between a guy who's ranked 80th and a guy who's ranked fourth. And that's the thing is you're going to get more value numerically wise. If, if Florida brought in a class like this every year, they would get more out of this class than they got out of last year's or than they get out of last year's class. I think year over year over year, it's just a question of, um, you know, is there going to be enough depth? And honestly, did they bring in enough guys? Because like, there aren't a whole lot of guys in this class, only an 18 person class. At it point. stands at 18 right now. Three more uh, defenders Josiah Davis, Teddy Foster, and Gregory Smith, the third out of Sumner High School, uh, not not too far from where I'm at here, Will. So Gregory Smith, interesting prospect, 6'4", 200 pounds, lanky uh, defensive back there. Same with Teddy Foster. He's got that kind of lean, long build, too, that looks like he can really run, and and I guess they'll work with, with those guys to develop them. But good good-looking prospects, at least eight total defenders overall, Will eight total defenders, uh, 18 overall in the class, only eight on defense there. Of course, you have tremendous turnover on the defensive staff as well, and we saw a lot of the flips were were defensive heavy as well. So a lot of the the flips that we lost were defensive guys. Obviously, those numbers need to improve in the future, but it also makes you think that between the light portal class so far, four guys in the portal, I believe, so far, there's going to be – more action down the road but just because you think there should be action does that mean we're going to see it because i don't know if that math problem is always added up here well well so i want to go back i want to go back to greg smith real quick so if you look at florida's cornerbacks last year jakeem jackson 6-1 jason marshall 6-1 sharif denson 5-11 jalen kimber six foot zero aaron Gates 6-1 jadon hill 6-0 ethan pouncey 6-1 Dijon johnson 6-1 devin moore 6-3 and then you had javion tombs who's 5-11 and sebastian vargas who's 6-1 so the only guy who's over 6-1 is devin moore at six foot three 
and more while injured. When you looked at his numbers through pro football focus, he was by far the best corner in coverage for Florida last year. And I saw that live when he was playing against Florida state, he was much better in coverage than the other guys who were out there. Now, does that mean that Greg Smith's going to come in and be an awesome coverage safety? No, but Corey Bender was on Gators breakdown earlier this week. And he specifically said, Greg Smith is a legit six, three, six, four. Like some guys get listed at six, three in high school and you see him and they're six feet and you're like, Oh, like he's not really all that big. He said, Greg Smith is a legit six, three. So in terms of, in terms of something they don't have on the roster right now, they don't have guys who are six foot three who can go out there and high point the ball. And how often have we had guys who just like get absolutely toasted on the back end when when the ball goes in the air? It's just they do not. Have By the guys. way, again, I don't think I don't think a lot of teams have defensive backs who are that tall. That that's no, a, well, I mean, again, that's a very tall defensive back. Yeah, I mean, you look at Kamari Wilson, 6'0", Miguel Mitchell, 6'1", Jordan Castell, 6'2", one of the bigger guys, R.J. Moten, 6'0", Bryce Thornton, 5'10", Ethan Wilson, 6'1", Amon Covington, 5'11", Kyron Rackley, 5'10", Dakota Mitchell, 5'11", Braden Slade, 6'1", and then Jamarcus Weston, the wide receiver, who they moved to safety, 6'3". So even at the safety position, nobody really all that tall. I think that Greg Smith brings that skill, if nothing else. Now, look, I mean, a guy ranked 500th is not a bad prospect. It's just <laughs> you got to stack these guys. Otherwise, Smith and Davis are going to have to be good. And with with uh, Miguel Mitchell leaving and with Kamari Wilson leaving, sort of the safeties from that first recruiting class, now these guys are going to have to step up. And it's going to be the same thing that we saw last year. But youth isn't going to be an excuse once you've gotten three years in. If you got to put a true freshman out there because you don't have depth, that's on you from a roster building perspective and so that won't be an excuse these guys if they get in there to play they're going to have to step up right away so i think there's some reason to believe that they've got some physical attributes that will help them to do that but now it's a question of do you get in there early do you learn the system and are you able to put there are you able to play out there early now look they're definitely not afraid of putting a freshman safety out there because uh castell got quite a bit of time and bryce thornton got quite a bit of time this year so it's not as though these guys aren't going to have to are, are going to have to step in and start day one i suspect that thornton and castell are going to be the guys who start back there but these are going to be guys who are like high level backups who are coming in and getting significant playing time similarly two guys like jakeem jackson last year who played quite a bit at corner and they're going to get quite a few plays and so they're going to have to have an opportunity to go out there and step up and there's going to be some times where they're going to be the guy isolated man to man we've seen austin armstrong he leaves the safeties out on islands quite often and that didn't work out so well last year so hopefully greg smith and josiah davis are guys who can help bring that uh, bring that around Switching over the offensive side of the ball, Fletcher Westfall up front uh, headlines an offensive line group that once they had it locked in was pretty steady throughout. Uh, Mike Williams, Marcus Maskell, and Noel uh, Portigen rounded out. Uh, Portigen, of course, the German prospect. It seems really outside of Westfall, these guys seem like they're going to require some time to develop. Westfall seems like the guy that would have the shot at playing the earliest. Although I'm not really expecting any of these guys to jump out right away. I think, uh, especially along the offensive line, you need that year or two for development. But I do think that each one of these guys will have the opportunity to play early in their careers within the first couple of years. I don't, I don't think it's going to be this year, but I think next year they'll be able to compete for time along that offensive front. Yeah. I mean, so, 
you've already seen that Florida's brought in guys through the transfer portal. They bought in, brought in Brandon Crenshaw Dixon, who's an offensive tackle from uh, San, San Diego, Diego State. State. Yep. You bring in that guy. You've already got Austin Barber out there. You've got Damian George, and I know fans won't necessarily be excited about that. You've got Cam Waits, who was out there at tackle last year as well. And then you've got guys like Caden Jones and uh, and some other guys who who have been in the system for a little while. I think David Connor is the other one who who's who's in there at tackle. Um, so there. Are some guys who are there to where Maskell, Westfall, and Williams aren't necessarily going to have to be a starter, but I think when you start looking at the tackle position, they're gonna have they're gonna have an opportunity to compete for backup time, definitely. And and uh, you know, look, I, I think you look a couple of years ago at the guys that Billy Napier brought in guys like Christian Williams, who was ranked 1232 guy like Jalen farmer, who was 690 David Connor, who was 1023. Connor's in Colorado. I believe he transferred. Yep. He did. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, and then uh, so you, you look at those guys as guys they brought in three years ago. And now you've got Bo Roo, who's at 729, Port Jagan, who's 1004. Then you got Maskell at 471 and Westfall at 204. So really it's Westfall and Maskell that you would expect to be guys who are relatively ready to step in. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I'm not expecting uh, Micah Mazuka to come back. He ran out during senior day. Uh, but he does have, I think, three years of eligibility or two years of eligibility left. And so it's possible that Mizuka comes back. He actually played pretty well the second half of the year there at guard. And so depending upon who comes in, depending upon how they have to manipulate things, these guys probably aren't going to have to play that quickly. But that's the thing, is especially in the SEC, but college football in general, offensive line is a developmental position unless you just get a transformative left tackle. I don't think Westfall's that guy. I think Westfall's a blue chip left tackle, but he's not a transformative left tackle. This isn't this isn't uh Samson Okunlola or or some of these other guys who are really, really up there, um, who are just can't miss guys. And so since that's the case, hey, yeah, I, I mean, I think it would be great if some of these guys broke into the rotation, um, especially given some of the play we saw on the defense or on the offensive line last year. But, uh, you know, I don't think that's a fair expectation. I think these are solid additions to the class. And Bill Sykes wrote on our site a few years ago about needing four offensive linemen per cycle. That if you looked at Alabama, if you looked at Georgia, if you looked at teams that run the ball well – they don't necessarily like they bring in blue chip guys, but they also bring in numbers. And in some ways that's because three-star offensive linemen turn into very solid contributors at a rate that's, it's harder to predict which guys are going to be fantastic. Like it's not hard to predict the guy who's the five-star, but once you start getting into like the, the, um, once you start getting into like the 200 range to the 800 range, well, now scheme matters. You know, is it some wishbone op offense that you can't tell whether this guy can pass block? Is a guy better suited to be a guard? And if you move him from tackle to guard, all of a sudden he'll be able to succeed quite a bit. Offensive line is tough to evaluate, um, especially if you just see a guy one time or two times. So um, those guys tend to turn out pretty well or on a fairly regular basis. And look, I'm not making excuses. Florida needs some guys who are like sitting there in the top 10 um, on the offensive line, or at least should be getting guys who are in that space. But this is, you know, they've stacked the four guys in this class that they need. Look, if Port Jagan turns out to be a much better prospect just because nobody saw him. And the the word is that he jumped out in camp like that, that when they saw him, they said, Oh yeah, this guy's way better, <laughs> way better than where he's ranked. Um, you know, that, uh, that maybe you get a lot more value out of this than, uh, than just appears from a, from a recruiting ranking perspective. 
Well, you mentioned Amir Jackson, the tight end coming in at the skill positions here. Uh, Jare Hawkins, uh, TJ Abrams coming in the wide receiver spots and at running back Kanan Daniels and Arkansas flip uh, Jaden Baugh at the running back position. Picked up two running backs this cycle. Of course, you're losing Trevor Etienne to the transfer portal. Hasn't officially committed. Don't don't break our hearts there, Trevor. Don't go go anywhere else. Go anywhere else if you're if you're thinking about it. But don't don't go there. But uh, you know the running back position will. It's in good. I, I feel like this is the one spot you talk about. What what does Billy Napier do well? I I think the running game is going to be in good hands if, if, as long as he's in Gainesville. Uh, Etn obviously phenomenal talent, but we haven't had an issue finding productive running backs so far under Billy Napier. Well, look, Ball played quarterback, played receiver, played defense, um, and played running back. So from the standpoint of what you can expect from him, um, one of the things he said at his at his uh, announcement ceremony was about – he was talking about how versatile he is. And uh, ETN, for all the good that he did, was just a terrible pass blocker when it came to pass protection. We saw – there was when he decided to, to enter the transfer portal, there were a few Gator fans who put together, like, running clips of, <laughs> you know, uh, highlight reels of him missing blocks. But – Montreal Johnson wasn't that great at it either. When you start looking at the statistics, you start looking at those sorts of things. Can ball come in and be a, be a third down back right away. And then Kane and Daniels has shot up the boards in terms of overall rankings over the last, over the last six months, um, because he had an unbelievable season, led his team to a state title and was just ripping off runs. I think he averaged something like 14 yards a rush or something like that um, for the season. So, um, and Daniels and Ball, I think they brought in some solid guys. Maybe one of them turns into a star. We'll see. But even just the contributions from a guy on third down, somebody who can pass protect, that would be useful. I think the the wide receivers, again, Dre Hawkins and TJ Abrams, you combine those guys with Trey, with Trey Wilson, what he's already done, and then Aiden Mizell and Andy Jean. And all of a sudden now you've got quite a bit of competition in that room, whereas numbers were kind of a kind of an issue. Certainly losing Isaiah Williams, you would have liked to have brought in all three, but um Hawkins is the guy who really seems to be the burner and you know might be the might be the fastest guy on the team when he comes in so certainly a good addition there the big thing for me is that at running back and wide receiver they have started to stack talent like you start looking at the roster and you've got (laughs) and you've got cam carroll and montreal johnson you've got trayon webb and then you've got daniels and ball out of five guys you should be able to find two or three who can contribute same thing they just you know we'll talk about shamir dk um transfer from wisconsin but then you've got jaquavian frazier's marcus burke Khalil Jackson, Trey Wilson, Andy Jean, Aiden Mizell, Jare Hawkins, and and TJ Abrams there at wide receiver. Now you're starting to stack. Not every one of those guys has to turn out, but somebody from that Gene, Mizell, Hawkins, and Abrams is going to have to step into a role this year and be significant. The problem that I that I run into with the other positions is Amir Jackson may be a really good player, ranked 87th overall, high-level four-star guy. But the only guys you have on the roster at tight end are Boardingham, Hayden Hanson, Tony Livingston, and then Jackson. So Boardingham and Hanson were pretty good last year. We didn't see much from Livingston at all. And then Amir Jackson is going to have to come in. And and what happens if you get an injury at that space? There's zero in the junior or senior column at tight end. So that's that's a place yeah, where a maybe – that was, that was a position we saw really – I was very encouraged by what I saw at the tight end spot this year, Will. Well, I mean, we, my, we my commentary – my... Coming into the season – where we hadn't really seen production out of the tight end position. I wrote an article in our preseason magazine about the tight end production under Billy Napier going back to his Arizona State days as offensive coordinator. It's just not there. Last year, 
it was there. Uh, Boardingham and Hanson. I actually, I think Hanson was quietly one of the surprises of the 2023 season. Well, but this is my point is you had Boardingham and Hanson in the same recruiting class and both of them delivered something. I don't think either one of them was a star, mm -hmm. but both of them delivered something. One of those guys is going to step up into a more senior role and we'll see what happens with the other one. But you stacked two tight ends and Boardingham showed that he had a certain skill set and Hanson showed he had a certain skill set. Now you bring in Jackson, he has to hit, right? Because a year from now, Boardingham and Hanson are going to be ready to go off to the NFL or ready to go off into, into the transfer portal. Nobody transfers. Not, but, I don't know what but, you're talking about. <laughs> but, but my point is, is that you need to stack these guys over time. And if you run, want to run 12 personnel, you really kind of – like if you're running two tight ends, two wide receivers – then you'd like to see a little more depth in that room. I'd like to see more yeah. than, I mean, if, if they're trying to bring in, you know, they brought in three wide receivers last cycle to this cycle and they wanted to bring in three. And now you just bring in one tight end after bringing in two the last cycle. I think to me, that's a place where stacking would be useful. And uh, you know, they didn't necessarily do that in this class, but look, Amir Jack's a really good player. I think, you know, if he turns into a star, no one's going to care what, what that they didn't have some guy ranked 350th who was a tight end coming into the class. But that is a spot, I think, specifically when you look at the roster. They got four guys on the roster at tight end, and none of them are juniors or seniors. So you start thinking about where they're going to hit the transfer portal. That's a place where I think they'll probably focus. All right. Let's, uh, that, that's a thorough look at the, at the class. Really, the guys coming in, uh, there's, there's some, there's plenty good there. There's plenty good. Not the numbers, not the depth we want to see overall. Uh, disappointing slip. You, you had a chance to lock in in in, uh, in terms of getting down to uh, really having that top five class, and you end up, I think it's 14 on 24-7 and 16 on on three, Will. So not what you need to compete for the SEC crown uh, year in and year out, and we're kind of seeing a trend right now with Billy Napier so far, we're not closing on these classes down the stretch. We're not closing to, to get the that top-level class we want to get. However, they did have it in play. The difference this year between the other ones, if you want to take some encouragement out of it, I'm not trying to – I hate the phrase sunshine pumping. I, I really – is that like a unique phrase to the Florida fan base? I never hear that outside of Gator media context. But – not trying to sunshine pump here, but it was a good-looking class for most of the cycle. They were getting the guys in. They were committing. They were you got the commitments, but it's almost like watching a drive that goes down to the to the five-yard line and you have to settle for the field goal. Where you felt like we got the momentum, we're going the right direction, and then oh, we didn't we didn't we didn't get the six there. So I it's this There's wasn't settling for a field goal, Nick. This was throwing a pick six after you get the ball down to the five. Like th this is one of those where y you can sugarcoat it all you want. And and I, I get it. I understand that, that Lagway and, and McCray are big additions, but you know, in October I wrote, that there's virtually no way that Napier's 2024 class falls out of the top 10. No way. Because based on the numbers and based on history, that was what I thought. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't just one guy. It wasn't just two guys. It wasn't just three guys. They had eight guys flip yeah. in November and December. Starting November 11th. Starting November and, 11th. 
Big and and, and and the thing is, is that you've got a guy ranked 79th in Amaris Williams. You've got a guy ranked 73rd in Darius Hayes. Guy ranked 30th in Xavier Fulsamy. You've got a guy ranked 82nd in Jamonte Walter. 130th for Wardell Mack. 143rd for Nasir Johnson. 407th for Kendall Jackson. And 327th for Isaiah Williams. Seven guys on defense. Seven of the eight guys who flipped were on defense. For a defense that has been sub-100 in yards per play allowed for three out of the last four years. Like, they need reinforcements and they need guys to deliver. And if they had had will like if 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 everybody else had flipped except for Williams, Johnson, and Jackson, the three defensive linemen, I'm at least sitting here going, look, they stacked defensive linemen along with guys like McCray, guys like Brian Taylor, guys like Michael Boyeru. They they stacked those guys, and one of those guys is going to be a star. It may not be all of them, and it likely won't be all of them, but one of those guys is going to be a star. And if Kendall Jackson turns out a star to be at Miami or Nasir Johnson is a star at Georgia or Amaris Williams is a star at Auburn, we're going to know that Napier missed out on having that guy up front who is going to be a star. And given what we've seen on defense so far in the last two years, it's pretty clear that they need some difference makers, especially up front. And this was an opportunity to get them, and they missed out on it. So, you know, look, I, I think there's there's plenty of good players on in Florida's recruiting class. There just aren't enough of them. And if if you took out Florida's top eight guys and you put in these eight guys who flipped, the recruiting class ends up almost the exact same in terms of rankings. So what Florida lost in terms of flips was the equivalent of the top eight players of their recruiting class as it stands right now. Now, look, you add those eight guys in, you got a top three class. But it turns out that these eight guys won't play for Florida. And that's, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, doesn't matter. Th this actually is the implication of the bump class. And everybody got mad at me last year when I was negative last year when the whole point was you can't negatively recruit against a guy for a bump class because he hasn't actually been out on the field yet. And, yeah, by the time December rolls around, like, you know, the you can see the record – but that's why it's critical to have that bump class be unbelievable because you then build that momentum. No one can negatively recruit against you. That momentum builds. Everybody builds. The hope builds. And then this class delivers. And you're like, okay, now we're really building something. That bump class just wasn't good enough. And what we've seen now is a team that went six and seven and then a team that went five and seven. And there's enough rumblings around Napier that there were multiple commits who sort of talked about, I want to make sure I go someplace stable. And the fact that Hugh Freeze at Auburn is considered a more stable situation than Billy Napier at, at, at Florida speaks volumes about where the program is, where it sits, and what the perception is. Nobody goes is, to so. Auburn for stability, so we could just call <laughs> BS on that real quick. Auburn is maybe the least stable place in college football. Well, Auburn had a lot there. of money, I guess, is, is, is the uh, – right, There is, you go. Well, so, But uh, again, Florida, point Florida, out, has a bigger, Florida has a bigger fan base, a bigger alumni base, and should have bigger pockets than any of those guys. So and so eight, eight uh, money flips. is no damn excuse. If you can't fundraise, that's your fault as a program. Well, that well, let's get there in a sec. Eight flips – they're to the same set of schools. Well, you got two guys going to Auburn, two guys going to Texas. Uh, you had uh, two to Miami, but then Jackson went to A&M. So then you had two to A&M <laughs> and then Georgia. And uh, and then oh, I said Miami with with Hayes. So, yeah, two to Texas, two to, two to Auburn, one to Georgia, and then two to Miami, and then one to A&M on that. So that's – that's the same set of schools. You're getting beat out by Texas. You're getting beat out by Auburn. You get beat out by A&M. You're getting beat out by Georgia and Miami. Same usual sus suspects on the uh, 
recruiting trail there. Well, what what are we doing that we are constantly like when you hear Florida's going up at the last second against the Texas, against the Georgia, against an Auburn or Miami, what's your confidence level as a Gator fan that we're ever going to end up on top of those when we go head to head in those battles? And, and you can point to some guys in this class and say, yeah, they went to Florida, but it feels like far more often than not for that top tier, that top echelon talent, we're always the the one going, oh, we didn't quite get there. We didn't quite get there on, on the bid. I I have to think with the top echelon talent, Will, it, it, it does come down. Ultimately, they could talk about the situation all they want. Xavier's talking about staying at home at Texas. Okay, like, I, I got to think at the end of the day, you got a tremendous opportunity to make a lot of money. And if one school's coming in over the top that much more than the other, I would think that would be something that would sway a top-level recruit. Well, I am I am enjoying the coaches getting sort of hoisted by their own petard. Unfortunately, it's my coach who's getting ho- hoisted by this. But you think about it, the coaches have just sort of sat there and preached loyalty and preached discipline, and then you know the guy who's sitting at uh, at at uh, Florida State decides to go to Texas A and M for seventy five million dollars or whatever that was for Jimbo and and bail on that sort of situation, and then sits there and goes to A and M and starts preaching loyalty and and discipline and all that sort of stuff. The coaches have had this going on for years the only difference is we've actually seen the dollar numbers right so florida state could sit there and go 75 million dollars for jimbo that's ridiculous turns out they were right but but you know we've actually been able to see the dollar numbers so you kind of know what's going on you know what the market is and here it's all it's all hush hush nobody knows what the actual numbers are so you don't really have a perception but look i've never seen a class fall apart like this in all the years I've been following recruiting on National Signing Day or early signing day now, but I mean, you know, even in February when it used to be National Signing Day, I've never seen a class fall apart like this. And so the only conclusion that I can draw is that it's NIL related and that last minute somebody comes in and says, hey, we'll beat the offer that that Florida gave you. And Florida either gets an opportunity to match or Florida had an opportunity to up it beforehand, didn't do it, and the player feels disrespected and decides, I'm going to go someplace else. But to get mad at them, I'm I'm not like the players are in a position where they're in an open market and there's a deadline coming up. And honestly, if relationship doesn't matter at that point, it's a business decision. And, you know, these guys have all gone on official visits to Auburn and Miami and Texas and Georgia and Texas A&M, and they know what they're getting into. And the idea that they don't have like a backup school to the first school from a relationship relationship perspective is ridiculous. And the other thing is, is if somebody hands you 2 million bucks, and again, I don't know what the numbers are, but if somebody hands you 2 million bucks to come to school, that's better right now than being guaranteed a third round draft pick in the NFL, like a third round draft pick in the NFL. That means three years from now, you're going to be making whatever that contract is. I don't know. What would it be like four years, like 8 million bucks, something like that. And too many, like the Otani contract's a great, great example. Like he signs 10 years, 700 million. Everybody gets all excited, but he's deferring all that money. And by deferring the money, it drops the overall value of the contract, like $450 million. Now, boo hoo, $450 million. That's a lot of money, but it basically dropped almost $300 million off the, off the contract. So if you get 2 million bucks as a freshman in college or before you're a freshman in college, 
and you got to wait three years to get the NFL money. I'd have to do the analysis, but you know, from a deferred compensation perspective, that's actually worth more than what you would get in the NFL as like a third round draft pick. And that assumes you actually get drafted, that you don't get hurt, all those sorts of things. And if you're coming from an area where, you know, your, your mom and dad are working two jobs to make ends meet and, you know, you're living in a house where seven people in a thousand square feet or, or something like that, like, and somebody flashes that in front of you, like, of course, like, of course, to hell with, to hell with loyalty. I'm loyal to my family. I'm not loyal to a college football program because the honest truth is, is, and this is, this is the thing that nobody really wants to say. I don't think is that, is that Billy Napier will care about these kids. I don't doubt that he cares for the kids, but from a roster management perspective, if one of them is underperforming, they're going to push them out into the transfer portal and they have to, because that's the way the game works. Like, and at Texas A&M or Georgia, absolutely professional football. Absolutely. There's just not a salary cap and there's no actual, um, and there's no transparency, which is is why it's crazy that we seem to get outbid to this degree. We're the university of Florida. We should be one of these players. And yet granted, Hey, we got, we got McCray. We got Lagway. We got, we got big players in this class, but for eight guys, I can understand. Hey, look, Ohio state was having players picked off left and right by Miami and Oregon. They had, they had three or four guys at the last minute get picked off. It's the timing though. That signals to me that, a deal's coming in because this all started November 11th, Waller to Auburn, November 12th, Wardell Mack to Texas, November 15th, Nasir Johnson confirms the UGA. And then all the the, the rest of five here, we're borderline signing day within a few days of signing day. Xavier, Phil Sami, Amaris Williams, Darius Hayes, Isaiah Williams, and Kendall Jackson. Uh, Jackson going to Miami, ending up at A&M. There, so. Well, so it, it's it's a it's a uh, it's a value question, right? And so, if Florida either one didn't have the funds, or two decided that the value was not there for what was being asked, well, then the question becomes compared to what? And I think that's going to be the interesting thing. One of the things that I'm fascinated to see is Lane Kiffin decided to strike early in the transfer portal. He brought in a bunch of guys through the transfer portal before early signing day. And I'm, I think that might be brilliant because I think there's going to be a lot of money left over from these schools. Like if you look at a school like Florida, let's say that they had allocated 500 grand to each of these guys. And again, I have no idea what they've allocated, but let's mm-hmm. say they'd allocated 500 grand to each of these eight guys. That means they got 4 million bucks that's sitting there that they thought they were going to allocate for this class. That's now available for guys in the transfer portal. And every other school that had a guy flip away from them now has that same money out there. So you got a lot of money chasing guys in the transfer portal and i'm interested to see whether the prices go way up and whether kiffin striking early before early signing day actually ends up getting him quote unquote a bargain for the guys that he brought in versus if a guy like prince of human milan had waited till after early signing day would the price have been higher than it was beforehand and again we don't know the exact prices but i think what we're going to find is we're going to see that what we will see is if in fact a lot of guys from the transfer portal go to schools that had say 16, 17, 18 signees in this class, then that suggests that all of this is money related, right? Because what it means is the teams that had money left for those extra six or seven or eight guys that they would have signed, you know, on a 25 man class, 
they decided to save it up for the transfer portal. So yeah, I said this last week on last week's episode that you can't really like the early start to the transfer portal or the early sort of slowness to the transfer portal. And certainly that's sped up quite a bit over the last couple of weeks with, with Billy Napier, but the early start to that transfer portal does suggest that, um, um, you know, they're going to have to build out with the transfer portal quite a bit, but it also means we kind of kind of wait until the dust settles to evaluate it. And it'll be interesting to see how Florida uses funds there. There are either funds available or they ran out of money. And if they ran out of money, then the transfer portal is going to be a lot of guys who haven't played very much. And if they have plenty of funds, then we're going to get guys who have been two or three year starters who've decided to get, get playing time elsewhere. And they think they can get in and contribute early to Florida. Yeah. I can understand losing out. I mean, look, I look at a school like a school like Miami. They've been doing it from the get go with NIL where they, they just seem to be able to throw deals at people that nobody else is coming close to touching. So like, hey, are you going to get Miami to a couple times this cycle to handle that once or twice? But that shouldn't happen with well, damn near a 30 year class, man. Like that shouldn't happen with a 30 year class here. So that's uh, that's the difficult I- part. And I, I wasn't trying to sugarcoat on the early side, I, on the early part of this conversation, because I, I did I did want to point out the fact, though, that you do have a coach that seems to have the ability to get these guys in the door, at least. That is something. We just got to close the deal. What's the next step to closing the deal? Is it just money? Because if it's just money, are we not in the ballgame with Auburn? Are we not in the ballgame with Texas or Georgia or, or Miami? We're not even close with AM. I, I I don't understand how we seem to where you can have a 30-year class get picked off like that is insane. That's absolutely insane. Yeah, I mean, so I think that there's a lot to be said for roster building from a general manager perspective and casting a vision. And I think Florida was behind when it came to facilities. Florida was behind when it came to indoor practice facilities and they were behind on NIL, right? I mean, they admitted as much last year when the Gator collective was morphed into Florida victorious after the whole thing with Jaden Rashada. And so they're behind and they've been behind consistently for an extended period of time. So you're still behind. And the reality is, is, so that, is it a Billy Napier problem or a Florida problem, Will? Well, I mean, I think it's both. both. I think it's both <laughs> because, option, yeah. because here's, here's the deal. When you're hired as the head coach at Florida, you know what your limitations are when you go in. And so you get up there and you go, this is a talent acquisition business. And if I can't bring in 25 high level, high talent, high school kids, you're going to be looking for a new coach. You go say that. Well, you are saying that with the assumption by the fan base and everyone else that the infrastructure exists to be able to deliver on that promise. And so when you don't deliver on that promise, you get held responsible. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure Strickland has some has some uh, has some culpability in this. There's probably culpability to go around. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Like when you can't like Napier had the leverage to get everything he wanted. They gave him the they gave him the contract he wanted. They gave him the money that he needed for staff. They gave him all sorts of different stuff. Where's the guy who's out there raising significant bank? who's casting the vision for what Florida needs. Like Saban can do that for Alabama. In fact, they fell to like third or fourth. What was that in 2022 when A&M just wiped the, wiped the floor with everybody. And he went out there and accused Jimbo of buying players and said, we need our guys to step up. We need more money to compete with these guys was essentially the message. And it turns out that Alabama was able to deliver. So, you know, that to me is the thing is you got to go out and you got to sell. It's not just about selling your players. 
anymore on coming to, or your your recruits on coming to campus and being here. It's now a business transaction or as for many people is a business transaction, which means that you got to raise funds. You got to fundraise. Part of the job is going out there and making sure that you've got the coffers and predicting how much you need. Because when you go, when you go to somebody who's rich and you say, Hey, I need a donation to do this. And they go, cool. How much do you really like, they're not necessarily going to take kindly to you coming back two weeks later and saying, Oh, actually I need double. Right. So you got to have mechanisms in place to predict exactly how much you need and to be able to ask and and deliver on the promise. And that I think is going to be the difficult part now is you've got three classes that have been, you know, what, 15th overall on average. And people have all like if the people who've already given to the NIL processes are looking at it going, I'm not getting return on my funds. So you're going to have to cast a vision that's even more dynamic than what you did before. You're going to have to make sure that the people who are giving to those sorts of things still believe. And I guarantee you, I've heard from a lot of people who are like, why am I even giving to NIL if if this is what happens at the end? And I think the answer is, is that if you stop, <laughs> then it gets worse. But at the same time, like that's a vision that has to be cast. And that vision has to be cast by the face of the program. And that face of the program is Billy Napier. So, you know, I get it. I understand he's frustrated. And I know that this probably isn't what he thought he signed up for when he came in, but you got to adjust and adjusting doesn't mean getting up to the podium and saying, are you entertained after, after dropping 13 spots overall in the rankings over a month and a half? No, the fan base isn't entertained. What rankings? And that, <laughs> what rankings? What there rankings? you go. Uh, the ones that matter. Which one of those specifically? <laughs> the composite um, <laughs> need, need some work on the pr game too yeah i think there. so I, I, hey listen i i really am rooting for billy like i really like the guy overall i think he, i think this is something that i think most people want to want it to work like again it's not even just this isn't a billy napier statement this is a a gener, generality toward the florida head coach statement rolling over coaches over and over again. How's that going for us in the last decade? How's that going? I, I think that when you look at the transfer situation and the fact that we're, we haven't stacked deep classes, the last three classes, if we had to start over and you got a guy like Lagway McCray walking out the door in, in a year or two, that's, well, that's a brutal thought right now. So, like that is, so something... we, we've talked, we've talked now for three years, the college football is about hope and that if you're not winning, it's about casting a vision to where there's hope and the eight flips make it seem hopeless. And DJ Lagway is the thing that we're all holding on to. So that's why we say that Lagway is tied to Napier at the hip, and essentially his performance is going to determine the future. Because you can win an SEC title with this recruiting class with an elite quarterback, but you're not winning it with Graham Mertz at quarterback. You're just not. Mertz played very, very well this year. He is not Cam Newton. I don't think I don't think we're uh, we're breaking news when we say that. And you need Cam Newton to win with this level of recruiting. That's just the way it is. And yes, the transfer portal has changed the dynamics in terms of how you build your roster. But unless they're bringing in Evan Stewart and Walter Nolan in the next couple of weeks, guys who were five star recruits before through the portal, then I'm still sticking with it and saying you need Cam Newton at quarterback in order to win. 
And look, he might have brought in Cam Newton. And if he brought in Cam Newton, he's going to survive and maybe even thrive. But part of the reason he'll thrive is because a lot of people are going to want to come and play with a guy who's as good as Cam Newton. And so, you know, if you can get DJ Lagway to be the Pied Piper to bring other people in, well, now all of a sudden it becomes an easier sell. But look, five and seven sucks, man. Like, and it doesn't just suck for the fan base. The players look at it and go, you were trying to cast this vision for a build. And what I'm looking at is a murderer's row of a 2024 schedule and you being out of here like that. Like I understand why someone would take a look someplace else, especially if it's more financially viable. So to me, this is all a vision casting issue. And one of the things I said, this on Gators breakdown the other night, and I think it's true is Strickland has not come out and given Napier any sort of support or vote of confidence or anything. And without that, he's sort of flailing in the wind because he can't say anything when, when a commit says, I want some stability. What is, what's my argument? I mean, my argument is, yeah, this is a rabid fan base. We do turn over coaches quickly. I'm not sure whether that's a bad thing or not. I think there's arguments on both sides, but if the, if the, if the on-field product was 10 and three or nine and four, we'd be having a very different conversation than the on-field product being six and seven and five and seven and losing the teams like Vanderbilt and Kentucky and Arkansas and, and, and that sort of stuff. Like the expectation in the first couple of years was not to compete with Georgia. The expectation in the first couple of years was to beat the teams you should beat on the field that you have more talent than, and it's clear you have more talent than them. And nobody on Vanderbilt's team came close to the level of talent of Anthony Richardson. How you lose that game is completely inexcusable. And those are the things that are sort of building and building is, again, where do I hang? Where do you hang your hat? Like, what is Napier doing at Florida right now that is differentiated from any other program in Power 5? let alone the SEC. Like, what is differentiated? What do I look at and say, he does that better than anyone? The only thing I can point to right now is he has a guy at quarterback who's the high school player of the year. That's a thing that a lot of guys don't have. And so Florida has that tool in the tool shed, and we'll see whether they're able to use it and use it effectively. You'd like to see, you talk about casting the vision as a program overall. It feels like in the last decade, we're constantly playing catch up. Right. Even right now, Napier's coming in. We're going to implement a guy who has a great understanding of the Alabama model, who can do it at a different level than what McElwain was doing it uh, in the first go around. I don't know if McElwain truly implemented the Alabama model here either. Didn't really see it like that when when he was coaching here. But you you get a guy that really understands that, and then the NIL era starts, and it changes completely changes all the rules to the game. You have a you're playing a completely different game than everything that that he had learned uh, under Saban, uh, under under Dabo at Clemson. It is it, we are constantly chasing. It feels like as a program, even with the facility, it's great. Dan Mullen adds into the tweet. Uh, it, they, Mark Ryan from South Carolina radio host up South Carolina, I believe his name is Mark Ryan. He tweeted out uh, basically where Napier's finished in recruiting or where Mullen finished in recruiting. And basically Mullen had finished better than Napier in his first three classes, average rank. And Mullen comments under there on Twitter. Boy, I wish I had those facilities. Uh, okay. Well, so we're still talking about facilities. I don't think these eight kids flipped at the last second will in the last month of recruiting because of the facilities. And we, we have the facility where eight kids flip. So I don't, I don't think facilities is it. I think it might've been a part of the equation Seven, eight years ago, 
we're we're talking about it here because it's brand new here. We're we're playing catch up on something we probably should be doing around 2010. Well, so, so the ti- the title of my article this week was called "Adapt or Die." Right, and it 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 the idea sort of came from a tweet that Lane Kiffin put out where he had a meme of somebody saying adapt or die. And he put that right at the beginning of the early Brad signing Pitt from day. Moneyball. <laughs> Brad Pitt from Moneyball, which is appropriate considering, uh, considering what we're talking about here in terms of like arbitrage and, and Moneyballing college football at this point. Um, and, and so that to me is the thing, is this thing, well, we decided to bring in the Saban model. Well, Saban has changed over the time he's been at Alabama, he realized he got absolutely boat raced by Johnny Manziel and he started recruiting linebackers who could handle that. In fact, he had a defensive scheme that was really innovative considering that the spread offense was proliferating its way through college football and his defense is specifically tailored to do that. Kirby Smart, I think, actually did differentiate things in terms of he, he really brought the arms race to recruiting in a way that in a way that no one had before. And Alabama had been against dom- Alabama. Alabama uh, was Al- the only one running that show for a while. Well, but again, like you saw Saban sort of drop off and he had to make some adjustments. I think you saw somebody like Jimbo who came in and said, I'm going to blow my entire wad in one class and hopefully that'll carry me through. And that didn't necessarily work. So you're going to try some things and some things are going to work and some things aren't going to work. But I mean, I'm reminded of like, you know, you're not guaranteed to have someone who's going to be able to adapt and be transformative. Like you think about Texas, they had Mac Brown comes in, wins a BCS championship. Things starts to fall off. Then they bring in Charlie Strong. I wouldn't say strong was like some like he played he he did a really nice job at Louisville, but he wasn't a, he's not a transformative figure in terms of like his defensive scheme was not innovative in for college football. Tom Herman sort of the same way. He was a spread Urban Meyer disciple. By the time he gets the job at Texas, you've got people who know how to deal with the spread in college football. Sarkeesian comes in and he's actually done some innovative stuff. We're going to have some stuff up on read reaction this week, talking about what's happened at Texas and sort of how to model that. Um, And so he's done some innovative stuff there. And I think you start looking at when Florida has been successful. They were successful with Steve Spurrier and everybody be like, Oh, he's a Florida legacy and all stuff. That fun and gun was really innovative for the sec. Urban Meyer comes in and everybody's like, Oh, you can't run that crap in the sec. It's not going to work. And that's innovative in the sec. So to me, if you're Florida and you're looking for something like an offensive coordinator, it can't be somebody who, if I'm Billy Napier, I'm not looking for somebody who used to play for me, who knows my offensive scheme and wants to implement it. Or if I'm looking for defensive coaches, I'm not bringing in somebody who you know worked with Patrick Tony and knows that system or worked with Austin Armstrong and knows that system. I'm trying to identify the people who are innovative, who can give me an edge because of the scheme that we're running. Think about Heupel at Tennessee. He gets a lot. And in fact, one of the really interesting things that I saw that I've been looking at recently is the pro football focus data for offensive, for the different offensive positions. For most of the offenses that are in the top 20 in the SEC this past year, there's like significant areas where they are way above average. Heupel's offense is basically average the whole way around, but the offense was still really good this year. And I think that's because Heupel's offense is innovative compared to everything else that's out there. Now, Three years from now, I think the SEC is going to know how to deal with Heupel's offense. I think that advantage will be a lot less, and I'm going to be very curious to see whether he can hold on there at Tennessee because the innovation only lasts for so long before everybody catches up to you. And so that, to me, is the thing, is can you find those people who are innovative to 
to invigorate your program. And Saban did it when he brought in Lane Kiffin as an offensive coordinator because those guys are like oil and water. But they sat down. And in fact, Kiffin didn't know the spread. <laughs> that There was a fascinating article on ESPN last year talking about it. But basically what, what, what Saban realized was Kiffin was willing to question the status quo. He was willing to adapt. And so he said, I'm going to bring this guy in as my offensive coordinator, and we're going to learn how to run an offense that can beat our defense together. And by combining those two things together, we're going to build something that nobody else can stop. And you saw a significant shift in what Alabama was doing on the offensive side of the ball. And now Kiffin, I think, is doing the same thing when it comes to the transfer portal. He has differentiated Old Miss in terms of their ability to bring in guys. I mean, God, last year he signed every quarterback who was in the portal and brought him in there to brought him in there to Old Miss. That roster is going to be a beast. And it sounds like I don't know if he already committed, but it sounds like Walter Nolan's going to be there with you uh, and Milan. And he's, and he's Oregon. I think he's between Ole Miss and Oregon still. Yeah, so I mean, he's building a defense that's going to be at least top 40, top 50. And then he's going to have an offense with Jackson Dart coming back that's going to be pretty prolific. And he's also one of those guys who's been one of those fourth down proponents who goes for it on fourth down a lot, who really looks at those analytics to try to get an edge. And at some point, and I think in many ways, his approach to the transfer portal has been, I'm going to try to get an edge. I think the prices will be cheaper before early signing day. I'm going to jump in now. And if a guy's not ready, move to the next guy and move to the next guy, but have that whole list because I'm worried that, you know, Kiffin is worried that the inflation is going to start after early signing day and Ole Miss won't be able to compete. So they get in early, get those guys committed early, get them signed. And now they've sort of secured what they need there on the transfer port early on. So to me, that's the thing is how do you differentiate? How do you adapt? Because if you don't, you're going to die. And this idea that you can bring in an Alabama model, like Nick Saban talks about process, but part of process is change management and understanding how to adjust when things get off kilter. And you have to document that and you have to be consistent with it. And you have to do it intentionally, but you have to change. And this idea that Saban hasn't like Saban has adapted enormously from the time he was at LSU, from the time he was at the Miami Even Dolphins, Alabama. from the time he was at Alabama. You wouldn't yeah. recognize the beginning of his tenure at Alabama versus you know, the last five years of just completely different product, really last six or seven. Yeah. Now. And he spent the fascinating part about saving, switching to that up-tempo offense. And he spent a couple of years just bitching about how terrible it was for college football and then adapted it himself. He's fine. They're not going to change the rules. I'll, I'll take care of it myself. So I, it's a fascinating story and, and that level of adjustment, but even from a program standpoint with, with Spurrier, the Gators were trendsetters. They were out in front. They were doing something nobody else was doing. Urban Meyer, same story. Like they were doing stuff people weren't doing. When are we going to be that program again? That that's really been when we have been at our best and our most successful. So, well, I, this I, is this is actually where I think it becomes important. Is that is that we are trying to differentiate with or Florida historically is differentiated with on field scheme, and what has happened is that player acquisition is more important than on-field scheme at this point. So if you have an average on-field schemer who's a dynamic recruiter or a dynamic player acquisition person, I think you're going to be really, really, really good. If you have a guy who's an awesome play caller and a poor talent acquisition, you're going to be Dan Mullen. <laughs> and if you have a guy who's a poor talent acquisition uh, hire and poor on-field manager, you're going to struggle. 
And, you know, the problem is, is at least thus far, the on-field execution, the on-field discipline, the on-field clock management, special teams management, all that stuff for Billy Napier has not put a check in the box of, hey, he's an awesome on-field operator. So then you got to look and say, well, now we got to look at the talent acquisition piece. And the talent acquisition thus far has not been on par with the folks that he was brought in to be on par with. And, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around, but at the end of the day, player acquisition requires just as much innovation as on-field innovation at this point too, and schematic innovation. In fact, probably more than schematic. And that's one of the reasons why I think you need like a general manager structure and you need stuff where there's people out there just thinking about how do I make sure I understand what price this five-star recruit's going to be in 2027? Because I need to be fundraising for the 2027 class right now. And if what I'm running up against is I don't have enough money for the 2024 class, then I got problems because I should already have enough for a class four years out because I projected what these prices are going to be. And I think in many ways, if you don't predict 100%, maybe even 200% inflation year over year in college football, you're going to be behind the ball because inflation has been significant. There's a lot of money from all these programs that are running after very few five-star recruits. And so the price of those guys going way, way up. Well, luckily, Will, the bar is significantly lowered with the 12-team playoff. If this were – we were talking about a 14-team playoff, this is devastating, but – the 12-team playoff, you can recover quicker. You can be in the hunt quicker. And then the other bar that is pretty low to clear is maybe next year we will be viewed as a more stable program than Auburn because I don't think that's a high bar to clear at any point. Hugh Freeze and Auburn should be a pretty Hugh Freeze pretty just kicked our ass with his bump class, man. I, I think he honestly – he, he had a great class. They did, they did a good job out there. Well, I mean, you know, you start looking at the things that you have to do in order to win, like, you know, we put together for read and reaction, what we called the psych standard probably five or six years ago, it was right around where Dan Mullen was putting on his, um, his, uh, his bump class together. And there were a whole bunch of things you had to hit. And it was something like 17 blue chips. Auburn has 15. It was two, five stars. They got two, five stars. It was jump like seven spots in the rankings. Auburn certainly did that, did that finished seventh overall like he's he's checking some of those boxes not necessarily all of them but he's checking some of those boxes when it comes to when it comes to player procurement over there at auburn that might be more stable than you think especially considering that the guy in tuscaloosa is like 72 or 73 years old um it's I, entirely possible this thing might flip this. buddy i'm not on board with the retirement Saves retire. That guy's gonna go. Know, he's a robot. He'll he'll coach. He's gonna go until he's hundred. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not buying it anytime soon. Uh, well, wait. Maybe maybe the Chargers will give him like fifty million dollars. Remember? Did they do that with Brady? Like the last seven years of his career? Like, oh, it's gonna be next year. It's like, no, it wasn't. So, <laughs> hey, that that ended up being. We went pretty long on the recruiting class. I think we could save the transfer. We can go to the details. You, you mentioned Crenshaw Dixon at the tackle. Uh, Slackman coming in from Penn along the defense line. Bridges in the secondary and DK at the wide receiver. Sneaky quick receiver. Go look up some uh some uh Jim Ray DK highlights for Wisconsin. He had Mertz as the quarterback there in 2022. Nice season on YouTube there. Go look look up those highlights. And then Gerald Chapman uh coming in along the defensive line. The last point I really want to touch on, though. Well, we can get in all that stuff next episode. Jay Bateman, that story where he goes to Texting them the day after signing day, uh, it creates a a 
a mess on Twitter there. Ernest Graham expressing his displeasure with the lack of communication from the school. I don't know who knew what, when they knew it. It sounded like a thing that happened uh, that Bateman kind of sprung on Napier. I'm not sure Napier keeps Bateman if he knows that's going to happen. Obviously, Bateman was the only assistant along the defensive side that he kept that wasn't the coordinator there. So, But Bateman did a heck of a job with the linebacker class uh, this cycle, uh, bringing in Graham and and Childs, uh, obviously getting an opportunity to go be a defensive coordinator at A&M. That, that is, I saw some people referring to that as a lateral move. He's a defensive coordinator versus linebacker coach. So I know it's Elko, but Elko's there. So Elko's going to have some say on that defense for sure. But I, I understand why Bateman would uh, take that opportunity. Well, so you talk about stability. I mean, you're getting at least three years if you go there to Texas A&M. So, um, you know, if, if you think things are, are falling apart here, that might be a reason to do it. But look, I mean, in terms of the Graham stuff, I think the question is, and this is a question for Ernest Graham, is you go public with that and the perception from the tweet is that this is not the first time there's been a lack of communication between the staff and, and, and miles. I think that's a perception. I think it's a heavy implication. Uh, An an implication (laughs) then. And so look, I, I, I have played against Ernest Graham when, when we were kids in high school and he's pretty much the person who convinced me my athletic career was over. Um, Cause I hit a ball into the gap and realized, Oh, that's a real athlete as he ran one down when he was the center fielder for, for uh, Mariner high there down at Fort Myers. So I'm, I'm gilded here in terms of, I, I've got an affinity for the guy went to Florida at the same time I did that sort of stuff. At the same time, what I will say is when your linebacker coach leaves it should be pretty obvious that the first people you call is all your linebackers mm-hmm. and not, ju- not, not just miles Graham, but that your next call should be to Derek Wingo and to Shamar James and to Scooby Williams and all those guys, right? Like that a five minute phone call to all those guys saying, Hey, I didn't know this was coming. We need to congratulate him. Cause it's a, it's a moved defensive coordinator. We're going to get a guy in here who can coach you guys up. Don't worry about that. We've got this all here, you know, and, and if your feelings are hurt because you committed and then he left the day after, Hey, that's the way high school, or that's the way, that's the way high school recruiting works. It's always worked that way. Mm. And in fact, I think that's what Graham was implying. What Ernest Graham was implying when he said at the start of this thing, like I've always taught my kid that this is a business and you know, the, the nature of the business and that sort of stuff. So I don't know that he's necessarily upset with the fact that Bateman left, the implication is, is that he's upset there weren't phone calls and communication and stuff once he left. And then, like you said, the implication that this isn't the first time there's been a lack of communication, which suggests that they kind of in many ways, at least this is what the, the Graham family feels like, is that they're taking his commitment for granted because he's always wanted to be a Gator. And look, it's not a good look for the university. It's not a good look for Billy Napier. It's not a good look for um, future recruits who are coming in. Um, and, you know, should it have been handled behind closed doors? Maybe. But we don't know what the situation has been between Ernest and Miles and the staff up until this point. And, you know, maybe Miles called and couldn't get a response. And it was like the only way we're going to get a response if we make this public. Like, you know, I, I don't know what that. I don't know what the what the mechanistic of what the mechanism was going on behind the scenes, but just like last year, the Jaden Rashada stuff beyond the the dysfunction that was going on behind the scenes, it's a PR problem to have that going on in clear sight. 
And I don't know what the details of this are. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, I don't know what the details are of this behind the scenes, but it's a PR problem that it's out in the open. And if you've got a PR problem every year, the day after National Signing Day, we need to start talking about our systems and processes and and who's got delegated authority and who's responsible and all those sorts of things. Because if you're number 50, you know, the 50th overall national ranked recruit isn't getting a phone call when it's position coach leaves and an explanation um that, that's a problem so hey maybe he got called he just didn't like the explanation and and Ernest Graham decided to put that out there and he's in the wrong I you know it's entirely possible but given what we've seen historically for this particular staff and this particular program I'm not really in line to give him a whole lot of benefit of the doubt Hey, uh, it's been, it's been hey, dysfunction for multiple years. M- Miles, are you not entertained? <laughs> Go with that. That's a good opening line for that hey, call. And call him at what coach? Which coach specifically are you talking about who left? Which coach specifically? Yeah, I, I think, uh, hey, look, I got recruiting's the best behind the scenes. I, that, that just seems like a nightmare. Unlike previously, though, where you, you would feel like coaches would almost sucker a kid into signing and then he's stuck with his commitment. You can hop in the portal pretty quickly nowadays. Well, so it's and, not and it, it is something that Napier does need to make make sure that that perception's not there with the Graham family, obviously, because you saw your top, arguably your most talented player looking in the eye walk out the door this year. You need to make sure you, you, Graham's a, a guy that that could come in here and if he if he performs and plays well, he's gonna be beloved. This guy, he's the son of a gator, he's a legacy gator, he's gonna be beloved. You gotta make sure you're taking care of those top guys. And that, that's something that Napier has has been known for coming into here. The ETN thing, that, that takes a hit. You don't want any type of perception of that going on in the program, though. You you want to make sure your top guys are well taken care of. Well, there. it's funny because I saw some people on on X who were like, "This is the way the real world works." Like, you're if, if the vice president of the company doesn't tell you if you're if you're a floor worker that uh, you know that 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 your boss is being reassigned or something like that. I'm like, the the players have the leverage at this point. Like, they are highly played, highly paid, highly skilled workers, if you want to call them that, for this particular trade, and they have skills that very few people have. And that's one of the reasons why they're commanding the NIL deals that they're commanding to begin with. And so the fact that there are no limitations in terms of the transfer portal means you do have to keep them happy. You do have to bend over backwards. That is part of the job. And maybe you don't like that job. That's why you see a lot of guys go to the NFL because they don't want that part of the job, that the recruiting is not something they enjoy, that that's not something they want to bring in. You have other guys who they love the recruiting, that that that, that is part of what they want. But uh, you know, again, I just I look at it and I go, irrespective of who's at fault in the entire thing, I'm not inclined to give the benefit of the doubt to the Florida program because the Florida program has not earned that benefit of the doubt from me. And that's sad. I wish they had. I wish I looked at this and I said, oh, this is probably an overreaction. Probably shouldn't have been out there. But look, this happened on Wednesday. We're recording on Friday. That tweet's still up. And usually in a situation where it's like, you know, an emotional decision and it it wasn't done intentionally or not, not that it wasn't done intentionally, but that it's done in an emotional situation, somebody will take it down and be like, yeah, you know, I, I probably spoke a little bit too soon or something like that. It's still up. And uh, I think he meant what he said. What exactly, who's exactly at fault? I don't know. But again, I, I sort of look at it and go give me reason to believe that there's that I should give you the benefit of the doubt and I will give it to you. 
but I'm not at that say, place right now. I got to say this. It's probably never been harder to manage a college football program across America. That, that, that statement stands for across America. But man, what a shitty time for a rebuild. Well, we picked the worst timing for a rebuild, dude. And hey, 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 Nick, how, how much? You... Ago, if this were five years ago, we probably could have pulled this rebuild off pretty nicely. But you're losing the way you're losing, like uh, ETN popping in the portal. Like even the guys you have in, they're popping out. It's like, man, it is tough right now to do a rebuild. So not at Washington, it... not at Oregon, not at Ole Miss. And, and I think when was Oregon a rebuild? They, they did um, that before all the portal stuff went crazy. They were they Mario were not they were not gr- they were not great before Cristobal Mar- took over there. Yeah, Mario left a good roster for Lanning. No, uh, no. Oh, well, yeah, for Lanning, but not yeah. for not not for Cristobal. Cristobal took over a team yeah, that, was, that was like five and seven. Yeah, I think I think Mario was was in the first few years where he really built the roster. He's, it wasn't too much of the portal craziness. For, like Florida went ten and three and eleven and two, yeah. and then eight and four, and then had a bad year. Like so, this idea that Florida was like this decrepit program with no players is not based in reality. It's just not. Now, Billy Napier came in and pushed a lot of the guys who had contributed to those things out as an intentional part of building his culture, and the guys he brought in to build that culture in that first year have all left. And so, look I, again, I, I am, I am not trying to be a Napier hater. At the same time, like. This idea that this is like some un now it's an unprecedented time in college football, but this idea that you shouldn't have to adapt from what you've done in the past in order to succeed is bull. Every single person who's a CEO in 2020 had to deal with the fact that you couldn't get a raw material from China to save your life. And CEOs who did a decent job of how to how to fill their supply lines made a lot of money for their companies. And CEOs who just sat, sit, sat there and said, well, we'll wait for the Chinese supply lines to open again, got their lunches eaten. They had to adapt based on real world conditions because in markets, things change. So Billy Napier gets paid $7 million to be the CEO of this program per year. And look, I don't make $7 million. And so I can be critical of it because I don't make that kind of money. But, you know, you I'm have to adapt. a real world observation. I understand what you're saying hypothetically. And uh, we definitely need to see. We talked about it all episode. We definitely need to see Napier adapt on, on some angles. But from a pure management standpoint, Brutal timing, brutal timing yeah. for all this. Stuff. I mean, look, the, the higher you go up on the value chain in terms of the amount of money you get paid, the more crap you have to deal with and the worse yeah. the job is. No one who makes $7 million has a job where every single aspect of the job they love. And in fact, even if you look at the guys who won, like Steve Spurrier won a ton. And by the time he got done, he was miserable because of all the fan pressure. Urban Meyer almost killed himself while he was winning national championships in Florida. So I can't like not every aspect of that that job was good for urban Meyer certainly wasn't good for his health. Now he got paid very handsomely for it and he gets a lot of accolades for it. But, you know, we we talked a couple of months ago about the book that I read for the Patriots where Bill Belichick's run through a lot of his relationships. And the thing I came out of that book about Belichick and Brady asking was, God, was it worth it? Like, was it really worth Like you got a lot of accolades, a lot of fame and a lot of money and maybe the money was worth it, but you got the accolades and the fame from people that you don't that don't really matter to you, but you destroyed relationships with people that do. Was it worth it? And and honestly, that's one of the things is that as you make more money, the job sucks more and more and more. And college football, being a head coach, 
Like, I get it. These guys grew up wanting to do X's and O's. They wanted to be head coaches and now they're CEOs and they're not really X's and O's guys. They're not drawing up plays in the sand anymore because that's not where you differentiate as a head coach. And look, there are plenty of guys who are, look, Chip Kelly is probably a great example of a guy who's probably more equipped to be an offensive coordinator. There are guys who just, Dan Mullen is a great example of a guy who would be a fantastic offensive coordinator at a bunch of different programs that are out there. But as the head guy of a program in today's college football, those guys aren't the right guys. And so we shall see with Billy Napier, the jury is out. And there have been some questions. I think he's answered some of those questions and some of them have been good answers and some of them have been bad. But, you know, the reality is, is that you get paid an awful lot of money to deal with the bad aspects of this stuff. The people I feel sorry for are like the guys who are the the lower level assistants who have to deal with all the noise and all the uncertainty and all that sort of stuff. The difficulty with firing a coach doesn't necessarily like Billy Napier is going to be fine. Right. The question is going to be the people who rely on Billy Napier within the program. How are those people going to find positions once if something were to happen to Napier and his staff? And those are the people I think you need to look at and feel sorry for. And look, it's a change for families and all that sort of stuff, too. But you knew you were buying into that at the start. And, you know, it's hard. I mean, being a college football coach is hard. Nick Saban makes it look easy. But part of the reason he makes it look easy is he works really, really hard. And Kirby Smart, we've heard his halftime speeches. That guy, you can't accuse him of not being into it. Like that guy is just a killer when it comes to putting his foot on the throat of a team when it comes to halftime. It's 0-0. I want you to embarrass him. Let's go, you know, with really colorful language. That sort of stuff goes out there. So, again, I, I think this is a hard profession. He's risen to the top of that hard profession, but we'll see whether he can take that next step, and that's really what the next couple of years are going to be about. Well, we do have uh, we do have some we're going to see some roster movement still heading into the spring. So it, this is not at all set, but this is where we're seeing after early signing day. Uh, Will, what are you guys doing for Christmas? Just hanging out here. It's going to be fun, man. Just in Philly, hanging out, watching some yep. NFL football. Uh, don't have any family coming in, so it's just going to be sort of a. a uh, I mean, there's six of us, so it's still, still, still a big, still a big Christmas at my house. But uh, means we don't have to like move presents from here to Florida. That always makes it a whole lot easier. Yeah, that that certainly is. Yeah, we're staying we're staying at home too. Everybody out there, Christmas weekend. Have have a merry Christmas. We'll be back next week uh, with an episode before New Year's. We'll drop an episode before New Year's next week. So, in the meantime, we appreciate you guys sticking with us throughout the whole season. Enjoy the holidays here. Uh, for Will Miles, I'm Nick Newton. Have a great week, everybody, and go Gators. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.